everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Now, we like to say that there are two things in life that you can count on, death and taxes. And there's actually a third, change. Things are always changing. And there are some changes underway at Radio Free Joshua Tree. The online streaming at the station is coming to an end this weekend. I imagine this will be a temporary situation. But this is the last Myth in the Mojave program that will air on Radio Free Joshua Tree for the foreseeable future. And I want to thank everyone at the station, especially Ted Quinn, who invited me to create this program, and Steve Arbayo, who has handled the technical uploads and interface with the station with absolute reliability for three years. Three years. Can you believe that? That's quite a run. Now, the amazing events and community activities that are centered around the local Radio Free Joshua Tree Beatnik Lounge are in full swing and will continue. Uh, It's only the online streaming that is going into hiatus. And Myth in the Mojave will continue. As you may know, I have been archiving the programs at Bandcamp, which is a very good uh, hosting site for streaming and downloads, and I will continue to post new shows and make the old programs available at my site on Bandcamp. So please subscribe to Myth in the Mojave through the Myth in the Mojave website or the Myth in the Mojave Facebook page or follow me on Bandcamp so that you can receive regular announcements about new programs and so that your access to Myth in the Mojave is uninterrupted. Thank you, thank you, Ted and Steve and all of the folks behind Radio Free Joshua Tree. I'm looking forward to the next iteration on the Internet. The theme of change is a good segue into the topic I want to talk about in this program. How do you and how do we as societies imagine the forces at work in our lives? One of the functions or purposes of mythology is to answer that question. It's a huge topic, so believe me, we are only going to bite off a teeny tiny little piece of it, but I've been thinking about it a lot in the context of the 13th fairy, aka Maleficent, the angry evil one who comes uninvited to the party, interrupts the proceedings, and curses the baby, usually a princess, bringing about a magical sleep. A magical sleep that starts at age 15 or 16 when the princess pricks her finger on a spindle. I got interested in this figure after I saw the film that Angelina Jolie did on the fairy named Maleficent. I really appreciated the movie, 
But the more that I started thinking about it and reading reviews and commentaries, the more I started feeling that there was something unsaid, that there was something missing in our uh, shared interpretation of the film. There are lots and lots of stories that revolve around this motif of the fairy who is left out of the celebration because there isn't room for her because she's known to be evil or unpredictable and comes bearing her curse. There's something about this idea and this figure that's endured for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And obviously our fascination is continuing because we've got this movie that came out just a couple of years ago. So I want to reflect on this fairy and who she is and I want to do that in the context of two stories that you may already know. Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty, that movie, and the more recent film that I've mentioned, Maleficent, with Angelina Jolie playing the bad fairy. Because those two movies are in conversation with each other, and I think that the differences between the two of them provide us with some interesting insights into our cultural conversation about this fairy. Now, in many ways, Angelina Jolie's version stays very close to Disney in both plot and visuals. Maleficent's black clothes and red lips, for example, are nice iconic touches that Disney gave us, but the end is a very dramatic departure. I'm not going to tell either one of these stories in great detail, but whether you're familiar with them or not really doesn't matter because I, I want to sketch them out here for you first to create some context for where I want to take you in my thinking about the nature of the 13th fairy. Let's start with Walt Disney. So in a nutshell, in Walt Disney's film, we have a king and a queen. They long for a child and they finally have a baby girl. She is betrothed immediately to Prince Philip, who's also an infant. And all the good fairies are invited to her christening to bestow their gifts on her. Maleficent, the bad apple, comes with her curse of death by the pricking of the finger on the spindle. The last of the good fairies has yet to give her gift so she softens the curse and says that the princess will not die, but will rather fall into a deep sleep. A sleep that will last until she receives true love's kiss. As the princess is growing up, attempts are made to protect her from the curse. This includes the removal of all spindles and spinning wheels from the kingdom. And the good fairies themselves uh, raise and watch over her. But just as she's about to turn 15, one magically appears. Suddenly she sees a spinning wheel for the first time. It's probably furnished by the evil Maleficent, who has been looking for her and trying to make sure that her curse does come about. In any event, the girl is pricked. She falls asleep. And now it's time for Prince Philip to arrive to save the day. 
In Disney's version, the evil fairy, the 13th fairy, takes dragon form and in this form battles with and is vanquished by the heroic Prince Philip with the aid of the good fairies. The prince, who was established as Princess Aurora's destined true love from the beginning, brings her back to wakefulness with a kiss. This is a story about the romantic notion of true love and the heroic, triumphant masculine. The image of the princess, seen as passive, and she is asleep, has often been criticized for its portrayal of young women as weak and helpless and in need of rescue, and for the suggestion that a woman and her life are completed when she is possessed by her prince. Okay, Angelina Jolie's Maleficent is a different fairy and a different story that is consciously in conversation with Walt Disney. What I'm going to suggest in this program is that there's something else going on in these stories and in our fascination with them. The fascination that leads us to still retell them that's not uh, been articulated, at least not in a way that I've seen. Okay, so Angelina Jolie's Maleficent. In this version, we first meet the fairy as an orphan in the fairy realm. The sweet young fairy and a boy, also an orphan, who later becomes the king, the king with the cursed baby princess, meet in the fairy realm as children. He is there to steal something. She already has authority in her land and forgives him, lets him go unharmed, and they become friends. As they get older and move into adolescence, we suspect that there is love between them, and it might be only the fairy Maleficent who feels it. But in any event, the young man sacrifices her power, symbolized by her wings, to fuel his ambition to be king. He drugs her and cuts off her wings. This betrayal creates her desire for revenge and turns her against herself as she gives up her natural goodness to become a mirror of the king, hard, hateful, and cold. Now we're going to flash forward to the end of the movie. What happens in between is very similar to Disney's. There's a christening, she comes, she curses. The good fairies bring up the princess in safety. But at the end of the movie, it is the king, not the prince, who is trying to kill Maleficent. It is the king who is crazed with power and guilt and fear, who tries to destroy the fairy as she attempts to rescue the princess herself from her own curse. She tries to get the prince, whom she's assuming is the answer to the problem, to the princess. But in the end, the kiss of true love that revives Princess Aurora is Maleficent's. It is the evil fairy, Maleficent, who kisses the princess in grief and true love, apparently, and brings her 
back to wakefulness. Now, in what I experienced as a very clumsy move in the movie, a voiceover at the end comes in and tells us that the villain can also be the hero and that no one is all good or bad and we're all combinations and so forth. And and that combination is suggested by the fairy's name, I think. Maleficent always sounds to me like a combination of malevolent and beneficent. So, okay, yes, yes, you want to say, what else is there? Now, I want to remain for just a moment on the surface of the story. I said that uh, Walt Disney's version is about romantic true love, the heroic masculine, and the woman who is completed by being possessed by her prince. I read Angelina Jolie's story as one about the redemptive power of love, love between women, the love of mother for daughter, the love of an elder for a child, and of a woman's love for herself. As Maleficent's heart begins to open to the princess, against her will at first, but as she's watching this princess grow up, we see her uh, with the princess and a deer in the forest. The Princess Aurora is interacting with this deer from a position of pure delight and without fear. And that scene is an echo of an earlier moment in the movie when it is the young Maleficent who is delighting in a deer. I think we're supposed to see the evil fairy remembering her own youthful self and all of her loveliness and innocence and promise in the princess. Ultimately, Maleficent forgives herself for the betrayal that she suffered at the hands of King Stefan, and she begins to love Princess Aurora and wants to protect her and then becomes the one who saves her. Let's delve a little bit deeper here. Now, I've read a number of reviews and critiques and commentaries about Maleficent uh, when it first hit the screen, many of them from a feminist perspective and many of them dissatisfied with the movie because, they said, there is still a victimized woman, still a passive princess who needs saving, still a woman yearning for love, etc., etc. I agree with a lot of these observations and with the impulse behind them to reclaim and redeem what has been very cruelly marginalized to our collective detriment in millennia of patriarchy. I honor that impulse, and it is one that defines my life and my work as a mythologist, (laughs) this program being one evidence of that. And yet, I believe that the focus on gender, as important as it is, is blinding us to some deeper meaning in the story, a meaning that lives in this tale beyond our conscious manipulation, like a dream. Who knows how long people have been telling the puzzling story of a fairy who curses a child and brings about a magical sleep. You see, Maleficent is a fairy, after all. She's not a human woman, and her world 
is not ours. This is the uh, crucial error, I think, in Jolie's movie. Maleficent is a fairy, and she is a figure in a fairy tale, a genre that is structured around the actions of characters that are like cardboard cutouts, almost devoid of attributes. As Philip Pullman observed in the introduction to his collection of Grimm's fairy tales, these stories are so simple that the princess is beautiful and her hair is golden, and that's all we know or need to know. And yet the story works. That's because it's drawing on archetypal patterns. And this is important to understand because we see that the psychology then that we lend to a fairy tale is in fact our own. A version of a fairy tale and the response it elicits reflects the teller, the culture, and the individual listener. This is one reason why they are such useful and fascinating teachers. They are mirrors. Now, after I saw Maleficent, I went back to the fairy tale Briar Rose that was collected by the Grimm brothers. This is the story that inspired Walt Disney. And you can find it in the Myth in the Mojave archives if you want to listen. Tracing the steps back to this story led me into a different realm of reflection that I want to share with you. I find a core message here, not of romantic true love, not of redemption of the feminine, but of transformation and the power of the feminine to initiate transformation and renewal. I also suspect that our fascination and our problem, the fundamental problem, that these fairies present to us has to do with our fear of that transformation. I also find an antidote to the willful, vanquishing, let's make it happen model of heroic action. A model that has become the ego's mantra in our contemporary society and is leading us down a path of collective destruction and robbing our lives of meaning, mystery, and true creativity. Yep, that's a lot, isn't it, for a simple story. A story about a fairy who's uninvited and comes and curses a child and brings about a magical sleep. So let's unpack this by starting with the question, what is a fairy? The word fairy is connected to the Latin Fata, the fates, that which is ordained, destiny, to speak destiny. When we're in the realm of fairies, we are talking about fates. You might think of Norse mythology, where there were the Norns seated at the root of the world tree. Or Greek mythology, the three fates, Clotho, who spins the thread of life, Lachesis, who measures it, and Atropos, who chooses when to cut it. Destiny is the thread of life, and spinning is the act of creating a continuous thread from tangled fibers. It's a precursor to weaving, which is an image for creation and the mystery of existence that is tied to the feminine. 
The fairy, then, is a face of the archetypal feminine, as the fates, and she's connected to the actions and the processes of initiation, transformation, and the aliveness that comes from being aware that we are part of a web, that we are interconnected, that we are interrelated. The initiation into the mysteries of life and death, an understanding of time and eternity, duality and unity, good and evil. This 13th fairy we've called Maleficent exists in the archetypal company of figures like Medusa, the Baba Yaga, the goddess Kali, to name only a few of her many manifestations. So this curse, then, is a necessary part of our life. It is fate, the limitations and or the imperfections that give shape to our lives. If we consider the fairies as fate, then we see that they are carriers of a variety of gifts that compose an individual's character and therefore destiny. Now that's why they are invited. We could look at the 13th fairy then as the fairy who is bringing the message of our death. Clearly someone that most of us wouldn't invite to the party. We will all die. That's part of our fate. The question is when. Now what is tragic about the curse on the princess is that she's doomed to die at a young age in the bloom of her youth. But this is changed into a deep sleep. And we note that this is the gift of the last fairy, who is actually then the 13th and the definer of the situation. So let's take a look at what she brings. She changes the death. Death at a young age. That's what's tragic because the princess is going to die, just like we all are. She changes it into sleep. Now what is sleep? Sleep is a time that the body restores itself. It's a time of rebuilding and growth and dream. You can imagine the princess like a caterpillar in a chrysalis turning into a butterfly. Because although a sleeping person may appear inactive, we now know that some functions of the brain and the body are actually more active during sleep than when we're awake. The person who goes to sleep is not the same person who awakens. Our contemporary attitudes about sleep can make it hard for us to appreciate this. But those attitudes are cultural. They're a function of our historic time. And I've got to mention here that it wasn't until the coming of the Industrial Revolution with time clocks and bosses and the modern notions of a job, that sleeping more than seven to eight hours a night became slothful. People used to sleep when they were tired, period. They went to sleep more than once a day. They might go to sleep and then get up in the middle of the night and do things, even visit friends, and then go back to sleep later. Now, doesn't that sound like one form of heaven? And in all of your trouble sleeping... Isn't the worst part of it knowing that you've got something else that you're supposed to do the next day? 
that you're not going to be ready for? Sleep is a gift. Sleep researchers now also know that sleep is vital in some mysterious way for learning and memory formation, that is, for becoming ourselves. For identity is intricately tied to both learning and memory. And finally, how could we be human without the capacity for dreaming? One of my self-assigned tasks as a mythologist is to suggest alternatives to the prevailing view, the dominant paradigm. And this can involve a critique or a rejection of a myth, and I'm including fairy tales under that umbrella. But more often than not, I find myself digging gold out of them because our prejudices, the cultural constructions that we take as truth, and our ignorance about the past can make it hard for us to hear the messages in these stories. There is a cultural evolution in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see human beings, that I think sets us up not only to create, but also to accept a story in which we would humanize and uh, attach human motivations to what is essentially an autonomous, supernatural, psychic figure like a fairy. But that is, in fact, what she is. She doesn't need a reason as a fate to show up at the party. She simply is. The dangerous myths, I think, aren't so much the fairy tales, although our interpretations certainly can send us down the wrong paths. I think the dangerous myths are the ones that we don't see as myths. The dogmas and ideologies and theories that are taken as a literal truth are commonly accepted as factual reality, as the rules that run the world, that are really cultural constructions that exist simply because we agree to participate in them. Money, for example, is one of the big gods in our modern Western paradigm. But he only rules and operates and flows the way that he, it, does because we let him, because we have created a mythology around him that extends far beyond accepting this symbol as a marker for actual value in our market transactions. That's a whole other topic. So I'm not going to go off into a big rant, but I will say that if we understood that story, if we understood that all of our rhetoric about money and the economy and what hurts the economy, quote unquote, if we understood that that was a story, that was a cultural myth, then we could, in the words of James Hillman, revision it. We could ask ourselves different questions, starting with what makes the story that God gives to the good and that money is important so appealing. It takes imagination, but that is something that every human has and can exercise. We truly do live in a mystery. Our lives are largely the result of forces and dynamics beyond our conscious control, even our conscious awareness, which is frightening, frightening and exciting. The idea that we 
can't foresee and can't protect ourselves from the things that life might hand us. That's, a, that's something that, that most of us don't want to spend a lot of time contemplating. And yet, the, that is what this story shows us. The fairy will come. On the other hand, we also see that we will sleep before we die. Every life includes at least one encounter with the 13th fairy, the final one. If she doesn't come to curse your innocence and aid its transformation into power and wisdom and to help you find the path to self-realization, well, she'll be there at the end when your thread is cut and your spinning comes to an end. But she's not the only visitor to attend your parties, to celebrate the threshold that you cross in the course of your life. Her sister fairies are there too, bearing the gifts that shape your destiny. The story that we've called Sleeping Beauty, that was transformed into Maleficent, that grew out of Briar Rose, and many other variations, is a story, I think, of transformation, of the power of the archetypal feminine as fate to shape our lives and to lead us with varying levels of gentleness, into being what we are meant to be. So that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth of the Mojave for this week. Once again, I want to give my heartfelt thanks to everyone at Radio Free Joshua Tree, friends and esteemed colleagues who have shaped this venture with heart and creativity and intelligence. Myth in the Mojave will continue. Programs old and new will be available at Bandcamp. So please subscribe to Myth in the Mojave through the website or the Facebook page so that your access to this program is uninterrupted. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, feel free to contact me. And I encourage you to make use of the archived Myth in the Mojave programs that are available on Bandcamp. You will find recordings of two relevant stories there stories that feature the 13th fairy. One of them is Briar Rose, the version collected by the Brothers Grimm that inspired Disney. And the other is the Princess May Blossom, which I told recently. May Blossom does not spend her story asleep or waiting in a tower. And so I encourage you to check out that variation on this theme. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time. And until then, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery in your life alive.